It all began in the Roaring Twenties. Think cinemas, swing, big band, and bootleggers. It was a time when booze was still prohibited in many provinces, and the government was now cracking down on the hard stuff like opium and cocaine. I'm City TV reporter Shauna Hunt. Welcome to the Legal Podcast. On this episode, we explore the many decades of illegal recreational cannabis use and the impact it had on our society. There were a lot of very valid, documented stories of people consuming cannabis and kind of going crazy. Professor Dan Malik is a PhD and author who wrote books on alcohol prohibition and Canadian drug laws. So here's the story of how cannabis got a bad rap. So take me back to the beginning of all of this. Why was cannabis prohibited in the first place? Yeah, sure. So it's kind of a strange story because as most historians who've looked at this agree, we don't quite know why cannabis was added to the law that existed. So we had a law that started, people say 1908, we had an opium act that banned opium consumption for non-medical uses. That was expanded in 1911 to uh, morphine and cocaine. So by the 1920s, There was this law in the books. It had various names. It was something like the Opium and Narcotic Drug Act. And it had all of these prohibitions and these um, penalties for um, not only trafficking, but also for possession and using. So often people think, you know, the traffickers are the big problem, but this was sort of targeting people who were using it. And then in 1923, they wanted to expand it. Most of the punishments were being made more severe. And they just happened to tack on this cannabis as a substance in the little schedule of of prohibited substances. All we have in discussion of this was the minister who introduced it saying there's a new drug on the schedule. And they didn't discuss it in uh, the legislature. Uh, And so we just kind of have different theories of why it was added. One of the additional kind of complications is that there doesn't seem to have been many people using cannabis in Canada recreationally in 1923 when this law was passed. Cannabis was being used medicinally, but normally it wouldn't be like, okay, go get yourself some cannabis. It would be part of a prescription. So it just wasn't used recreationally as far as we can tell. But it was tacked onto this list of, of hard on. drugs yeah, yeah. that were causing social problems. They're, oh yeah, they, they, these were had, had deep roots in concern. It started with opiates, Opium primarily, but then morphine became more popular, Mm -hmm. and then later heroin, um, because of the addictive properties and because of the death-dealing properties. If Mm -hmm. you take too much, it will kill you, right? So so our original laws were actually pharmacy laws that um, had a poison schedule on the end. Mm -hmm. These are substances that were very medicinally useful. Opium is an amazing drug for certain things, but it was also something if someone took too much, it would kill you. So that's how the law started. It was about killing and about dying from this. And then over time, it became about misusing and then addiction was considered harmful enough to be a concern. And now cannabis has a bad rap because it's tacked on to this list of drugs. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And really, I don't know if there were any arrests for cannabis until the 30s. And then it wasn't until like after the Second World War, really, when things picked up. In the U.S., the, the argument is a lot of these laws were racist. But in Canada, we don't see that as much. We do see these drugs lumped together. So it was linked to all of this illegality as well as all these actually physical problems. So this is the 1920s. Yes. When does the recreational use of cannabis start creeping into our our subculture here in Canada? When are people using it? It's kind of a difficult thing to target, but I would say probably the 50s and into the 60s. I mean, and, and this is more about a cultural kind of shift mm-hmm. into countercultural behaviors like we, we hear like jazz music and connected with different drugs and uh, even sort of the 
the original hipsters coming out of like Greenwich Village, and we had our own sort of hipster community um, uh, in Yorkville, right? And I don't mean hipsters of today. I mean like this sort of... The OGs. <laughs> the original. Yes. Okay. Okay. Sure. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but okay. The original hipsters. The originals. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and so that was like a kind of a relaxation drug, right? And it was easy to put into cigarettes or put into pipes and things like that and mm-hmm. smoke as tobacco smoke, which was everywhere at the time. And so there was, no one was tracking recreational use. It was, it, the story was told through pop culture. I'm sure the RCMP was looking at recreational use by that point. Right. Um, but it wasn't a main consideration. There were considerations of, of, pop, uh, of, of countercultural activities, but it wasn't a huge problem. There were at the same time, and, and the parallel story to what I said about um, cannabis being added in 1923 was there was a bit of a social panic mm-hmm. in some areas about drug use. So in 1922, I think, a woman named Emily Murphy, who became famous as uh, one of the famous five from Alberta and the persons um, decision at the Supreme Court saying women are persons and they deserve the same rights and can sit in Senate and stuff like that. Emily Murphy wrote a book called The Black Candle, and it was all about the drug problem in Canada. And she had one chapter on cannabis, and she sort of reproduced a lot of the histrionic fear, like the real panic around cannabis about it drives people crazy and all of these things we see in the reefer madness um, um, sort of stereotype, right? But that is one of the interesting things about it being connected to this law of drugs that people were much more familiar with and the problems people were much more familiar with is that it did have those associations. And what's interesting about this, most people say, well, cannabis doesn't do that. But some people have, have talked about some scholars have talked about something called the um, the placebo script of a drug. It's like what you expect to happen when you take this drug will influence how you behave when you take the drug. Right? Mm-hmm. There were a lot of very valid um, documented stories of people consuming cannabis and kind of going crazy because that's how they expected to behave. And it's not. I mean, there's also physiological things, stuff like that. Back to the 40s and 50s. This is what. The sorts of concerns that drove leasing action against in the 50s. What was the yeah. fear of cannabis in that era then, 50s, 60s? Really, it was this idea of this is going to destroy the youth of today. And that may sound kind of boring, but that's because it's kind of the ongoing thread in discussions of drugs over the decades, mm-hmm. right? Is that this is going to destroy the youth of today. It was the same with opium in the like late 1800s. Um, and it's the, the narrative you hear about other drugs party drugs today that don't have as much physiological damage as things like heroin and, and, and morphine, right? I can't remember the community in Quebec off the top of my head, but they tried to do a sort of a Woodstock in Canada thing, and the RCMP infiltrated. infiltrated. They, they had right. narcs going around taking notes, right? Um, they didn't, as far as I know, do much arresting, but they took a lot of notes about what was going on, and generally their reports were like, yeah, they're just kind of sitting around smoking weed and being boring. They weren't actually, they didn't report back a lot of the sort of fears of cannabis that get reproduced in the popular press. And at this, this is the same time, this is into the early 70s, when the Ladane Commission published the Commission on the Non-Medical Use of Drugs, something like that, right? Okay. So it was looking at all recreational drugs. And one of the things it said about cannabis was it should be decriminalized because it's really not a problem and more of the problems come from its illegal status than from uh, people using it, right? So, I mean, sound familiar? <laughs> 30, right. 30 years later in the early 2000s, we start to go back to that decriminalization argument. So there was this sort of official recognition that 
it's probably not that bad, but also generally not a lot of broad public pressure to decriminalize. And again, cannabis was sort of tacked into this group of mind-altering drugs during that era. Yeah, And and it in some ways came to the forefront because it was such a blatant thing you could do. Right, mm-hmm. you could stand out in public or in a an environment and smoke cannabis. So it can be a representation of the counterculture in a way that um, doing other drugs wouldn't be. And the thing is, I mean, even with the legalization now, mm-hmm. it's nothing new. Cannabis <laughs> has been used recreationally for for many many decades. Yes. When did the thinking change um, as to you know cannabis isn't so scary after all? I can't give you dates, but it would right. be around events. So it would be around as people started to advocate more for the medical use of cannabis and for the medical application of cannabis. And part of that was through um, advocacy. A lot of it came out of BC, not surprising. But when you link it to things like helping treat cancer and glaucoma in seniors and all these other conditions, it starts to lose that sort of taint of badness. Basically, people say, well, it can't be all bad if people can use it to treat these things that are themselves bad. Along with that, Supreme Court decisions that um, make medical marijuana provision part of the life and health sort of rights covered in the, in the Charter of Rights. And that sort of drove a change in the way this drug was perceived. But along with that, there has been a shift over the past 40 years. And it started actually in the 70s again with, um, with Trudeau's government, Trudeau Sr., a, a shift in, in the way public health was operating. So all of those things kind of converged on this moment of legalization. It didn't hurt that the generation who was getting the messages about, you know, this drug is bad for your kids or the same generation that was smoking it 25 years ago and saying, well, I'm okay, you know, so I survived. So really, I don't think that that message is as powerful. Are you surprised it took this long to get to legalization? Not really. Um, with the ebbs and flows of politics, right, depending on who's in power. I mean, remember we had, what, nine years of a conservative government that said things like, if you take, and I don't believe in, you know, I think Harper at one point said, I don't believe in harm reduction because if you take any drug, it's going to cause you harm. You can't reduce that, which is kind of a silly, sim- simplistic statement. So when you do have these ebbs and flows, I mean, one of the reasons people argue that uh, Trudeau didn't go through with decriminalization in the 70s, which was a recommendation of the Ledane Commission, was because Nixon introduced the war on drugs, right? So suddenly you've got a, a regime in the States that's cranking up the rhetoric against it. Right. And, you know, you know, Trudeau also talked about, you know, living beside the U.S. is like sleeping with an, with an elephant, right? So he did feel the the effects of that, that rollover from the elephant, and, and it would have rolled over towards Canada and caused some trouble if we had decriminalized. So... Um, so, no, I'm not surprised because of the, the way um, right. politics goes. Just a little, little did he know back then his son was going yeah. to, you know, decades later. Maybe he did. <laughs> Maybe he did. Yeah, who knows? Um, okay, do you think that now that we are mm-hmm. here, cannabis yes. legalized in Canada, do you think other countries are going to look at us and, and follow suit? I know they're looking. Whether they follow suit depends on how things unfold. Give it a year. And we'll see. I know that, I mean, I, I work with a lot of people in the UK on um, alcohol and drugs sort of history and policy. There's a huge legalization discussion going on now in the, in the UK that wasn't happening a year ago, or at least it wasn't on the national. And this is a country that's dealing with Brexit every day, news is right. all Brexit. So for right. something else to squeak through and have this kind of resonance it really suggests um, something. And people also 
um, in the UK are, are very much attentive to this, and in other countries as well. Just as we were attentive to what was going on in Colorado and Washington State back in what was it, 20, uh, 2014? Right. Yep. Yeah. Now that it's on a national level, and the national government can, can has um, authority over the trade and commerce in the country, it can be managed in a way that can't be managed in the U.S. state by state. Okay, so we already did this once with mm-hmm. alcohol prohibition, and this yes. is your specialty. So Absolutely. what can we learn from that moving forward with, with cannabis? So the one thing is to like give it time. It is a process. It's not a, the first day and everything's better. Uh, at the same time we're legalizing, there's a crackdown on illegal, which is normal when you create a legal market. Part of the point was to snuff out the illegal market. Um, another thing is pragmatic policy is really important. At the end of Prohibition, there were still a lot of people that thought alcohol was going to destroy the country. And even though Prohibition had a lot of its own problems, they still were very wary of liquor. So the government had to walk a very fine line between providing booze and restricting it. Uh, and in each province, each province had a provincially run liquor distribution model and in each province they had to kind of make sure people just didn't go crazy with it right i don't mean like literally crazy but like drinking so much that there was so much disorder that the temperance people could point and say see we told you so let's bring back prohibition right so low and slow they just and that's what we're seeing right now with cannabis a lot of restrictions three levels of government have you know different sets of rules yeah, although the one, a few of the, there's a whole bunch of differences. Obviously, with cannabis, for example, there was it wasn't it hasn't been only about 15 years since it was legal, right? Which in some provinces right. uh, was the case with booze, um, or even 10, or even fewer. But the approach now, at least initially after Trudeau um, became prime minister, uh, a lot of the provinces were talking about paralleling their liquor system, which are now very different across the country from Alberta being the most liberal to. Ontario and and others being more restricted. Um, That made sense because people were already thinking of, okay, if it's intoxicating, maybe it should be controlled in this way. But one of the challenges with that is alcohol and cannabis are not the same thing. Consuming cannabis in public may not or may be more uh, annoying to people or not, right? Depending on whether it's smoked or... But alcohol can be consumed in public spaces that are licensed because it's not smoked, but cannabis can't. So there's that kind of difference. And sort of government started to figure this out, started to go, okay, you know what? We need to find a different place for this. But as you said, the low and slow approach is a pragmatic approach, but some governments have not followed that. And I would say that the Ontario government, when Doug Ford came in, he took a very different approach from the liberals, which was the low and slow approach. He said, open market, you can smoke it anywhere. Absolutely. And the challenge with that is that it, feels more like a, we're not going to do what the liberals did approach than a let's follow some sort of pragmatic policy. Now, what's interesting is we're seeing a lot of challenges with the distribution of cannabis in Ontario because there's no retail market. And that's going to at least temporarily enrich the black market. I know people who said, I'm, I'm not going to the Ontario cannabis store. I've got my guy and he's going to continue to provide it for well, me. Well, I can tell you this. Uh, there was a raid. Uh, some of the um, illegal dispensaries in Toronto mm-hmm. were raided. I was standing outside one of them yeah. uh, when cops went inside and, and shut it down. And I was there for two hours. Yeah. And I probably told 100 to 150 people trying to get Turn in. Around. You know, cops are inside. You yeah. might want to keep walking. That's the yeah. demand yeah. of uh, those dispens- the illegal dispensaries. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's so huge. The, yeah. And, and the other challenge, though, is the smoke it anywhere 
thing. Right. There's two challenges with that. One is the immediate challenge combined with the online-only approaches. I, I live in a border community. I live in St. Catharines. Right. If you've got Americans coming over who want to get their hands on some of this stuff, they're not going to likely go to the Ontario Cannabis Store online store because their records of buying cannabis may, they may feel, end up back in the U.S. authorities. So they'll come into Canada. They know they can smoke it legally now mm-hmm. in public. But there's nowhere to buy it. it. Right. So, so it will, I, I imagine, I, I would be very surprised if we don't see a huge increase, at least temporarily, of border communities having um, illegal cannabis being sold there. And the other challenge is that to the low and slow is if you have people smoking cannabis in public prior to today, uh, it was illegal, right? Now it's not. And so people who are upset about this because now there's, you know, my kids are just over there and these guys are smoking cannabis or we're just trying to have a nice meal here at the picnic table and we can smell cannabis. All of that stuff could cause the kinds of distorted reports to the government in the media that may actually push back a, a sort of a liberal cannabis regime. Not necessarily a legalized cannabis regime, but a liberal cannabis regime. So depending on who picks up on it will affect the result and will affect how other countries deal with it. Right. Moving forward, though, is cannabis eventually going to be like alcohol? Are we going to see the commercials, the lifestyle, uh, or are we going to see cannabis bars? I mean, you know, I mean, alcohol is now such a huge part of society. Is that eventually going to be cannabis once restrictions are sort of loosened? Yeah. You know, I don't know about the public consumption taking place as long as it's smoked, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a shift to edibles. That market is supposed yeah. to be 12 to yeah. 22 billion the first year, I, as opposed to 5 billion for, for smokable yeah, cannabis. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if there are things like um, the equivalent of hookah lounges, right? Where yeah. people can smoke it, but it's not filling the air, right? Not in the same way that like just a, smoking a joint uh, does. Um, there was discussion of this before the election about the idea of cannabis lounges where it's not being sold, but you can go and, and smoke it. And this is when the governments started to realize we're dealing with a different substance. Because at least in Ontario, when they decided on the question of where can people consume it, they took the strictest parts of the liquor law and the anti-smoking law. Just like you can't smoke tobacco inside a public building, you can't smoke cannabis, right. just like you can't drink booze in public spaces outdoors that are not licensed. You can't smoke cannabis outdoors. So it took the the most restrictive of both of those. Then they started to realize that it's a different substance and it's used differently. And if you are too restrictive, you're going to end up just perpetuating some problematic uh, uses. Any final words of advice maybe for our country as we move forward with this. <laughs> yeah, keep calm and carry on, I think, is part of it. Uh, again, I say it, it is a process. It's something that we don't know how it's going to unfold. But this is a time of kind of normalization of something that has never been considered normal, right? Cannabis isn't my thing. Like, I don't consume it. But I'm fascinated from a policy perspective on how we are wrestling with this really complicated Project, and I would encourage people to look at it in that way to say, you know, this is this is a dilemma we're we're trying to sort out as a nation, and uh, let's do a good job. All right, Dan, thanks so my much pleasure. for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> okay. Special thanks to Dan Malik for joining us, and a big shout out to my producer Ryan Clark and to Frequency Podcast Network for giving us a home. 
You can listen to weekly episodes on FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com. And of course, subscribe to Apple, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. Rate us, review us, tell a friend. You can always reach me on Twitter at Shauna City News. That's Shauna with a U. And I may know a lot about weed, but hashtag I'm not a pothead. Talk soon. Next time on The Legal Podcast. Every day I smoke cannabis. Every time you see me do an interview on the news, I've used cannabis. So if that's impaired, you know, I wonder what I would be like if I wasn't smoking. (laughs) I take a walk through the colorful streets of Kensington Market with Canada's Princess of Pot. We talk crime and punishment and her new fight for a clean slate. And isn't it funny, with legalization comes smoking in alleyways. (laughs) Just like the good old days. Want to feel like a scofflaw. (laughs) 